Hello, and welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. If you're listening to this on your commute, there's a good chance we'll be talking today about the people who made what you're sitting in. Every year, Toyota, the Japanese maker of popular models like the Prius, Corolla, and Camry, and the owner of the Lexus brand, is neck and neck with Volkswagen for the title of biggest car manufacturer in the world. Last quarter, their sales reached $78 billion. That's billion, with a B, as in blows my mind. There are at least a couple guys, though, who aren't drinking the Toyota Kool-Aid. I'll tell you, I've not covered things. And, you know, a year later, I I think, well, you you just let a a great thing slip right through your fingers. And and it's just a very tough thing to do. It just takes some instinct. That's Ralph Vardabadian, a national correspondent at the Los Angeles Times. But the flip side is sometimes you jump on something you think is a big story and it isn't either you didn't get it or it isn't really there. And this is a risk uh, of investigative journalism and one that um, good editors uh, are prepared for, which is sometimes the story's not there. And that's Ken Bensinger, formerly a reporter at the LA Times who's now at BuzzFeed. They're talking about how there's a lot of hit and miss in investigative journalism. But today, we're talking about a story that did hit and made Ralph and Ken finalists for the 2010 Pulitzer Prize in National Reporting. Um, uh, Toyota and that coverage uh, probably, in retrospect, marked a new chapter in my, in my reporting career. In 2009, reports started coming out about people having trouble braking while driving cars made by Toyota. In fact, instead of braking, the cars would accelerate on their own. It's known as sudden unintended acceleration, and because of it, Dozens of people lost their lives, with hundreds more being injured. Toyota recalled millions of vehicles. Their executives were called to testify before Congress. They faced major lawsuits, and the company eventually paid billions of dollars in fines and settlements. Again, billions with a B. But it all started with two guys who just knew a lot about cars and saw that something wasn't quite right. And that's just the nature of, of being a human being. People make mistakes and um, you have to accept that they're mistakes, but they get, you have to, you know, put the, expose them and, and people will still will want to try to hide them. But our job is to expose those mistakes, not because we think that um, they're systematically evil. They might be, but just because that's our job to expose the mistakes. Today, we're talking to Ralph Vardabadian and Ken Bensinger, the two LA Times reporters who broke the Toyota sudden unintended acceleration story in 2009 and 2010. We'll first talk to Ralph and Ken about how they got involved with this story because a death had been ruled a suicide and it didn't quite add up. Then, we'll discuss Toyota's efforts to stop their story, which might not have always been that dignified. And finally, we'll look at the fallout, or lack thereof. So, let's begin. I'd love to to get to know you guys a little bit better. So if we rewind to to 2009, 
Tell me about where you both were in your careers at that point. Were you full-time investigative journalists uh, working primarily on auto stories? Where, where were you uh, in your reporting at the time? So I was not at that point uh, an investigative reporter. Um, uh, I was a uh, beat reporter on the business desk at the Los Angeles Times. Uh, my beat was the auto industry. So um, I was responsible for uh, paper, much of the paper's coverage of, of you know, automakers um, and uh, trends and regulation and other things in the world of autos. Um, and uh, up to that point, it had been, it'd been a very busy beat because uh, in the previous year, um, several of the major automakers in the U.S. had declared bankruptcy for the first time. And it was uh, massive. This was in, in, the, in, the, in the middle of the economic crisis. So we saw General Motors and we saw Chrysler um, declare bankruptcy, Ford teetered in the edge, but didn't, didn't fall into the chasm. Um, and so it was very busy with that kind of stuff. And uh, at the time I was national correspondent, still have, still have that title, covered a lot of different technical subjects, uh, aerospace and defense, uh, air safety, um, nuclear weapons, uh, radioactive waste disposal, um, and autos, auto safety. I'd written a column for about 20 years on automobiles and uh, had done some prior work on auto safety. And Ken and I had teamed up, uh, I think that summer of 2009, to write a story about how uh, a trade uh, trade association that represents um, suppliers of uh, items for classic cars managed to get an exemption of, uh, for classic cars in the um, Cash for Clunkers program um, that they put through, and so we we had a good experience with that story, and um, uh, we uh, knew we could work well together on Toyota. With investigative journalism, then is it uh, is it typical that it'll just be an industry that you're already covering, um, not even from an investigative standpoint that you're you're just covering stories in, and then you come across something, uh, or is it? you know, for folks who are full-time investigative journalists, like how do you, how do you know enough about any given industry to be able to do a deep dive on any issue? Yeah, it's a good question. I've now had the benefit of seeing it both ways. Um, and uh, each has its pros and cons, but often, and I think more traditionally, it came, investigations came off of beats and, um, and I'm a big advocate of that. I think that uh, investigations coming off beats tend to, to find things that other people wouldn't know to look for. Um, so that's certainly one model, you know, something that just starts as a, as what might be, we might call a daily story or a small story can, can really um, blow up into something much larger. Um, and if you've ever seen something like uh, uh, all the president's men, that's an example of how something that, that no one thought much of at the beginning suddenly grew into something giant. Um, the other model, one that, that the team I'm on now sort of employs is sort of people who are full-time investigative reporters who come up with ideas uh, in, in a broad variety of areas of their interest. And you can have beats or you can not have beats in investigative reporting and people um, uh, present story ideas. And then if they get approved by editors, um, they just dive into that world and learn as much as they can on the fly. It, it, it has other kinds of advantages because some of the blind spots that people can develop when they cover a beat because they, they're deep into it um, may not apply to those journalists. Um, the obvious downside is that some of the 
intricacies and finer points of that beat that that someone who helicoptered in doesn't know about may also uh, plague the reporting. So there, there, there's, a, as far as I know, the two main kind of approaches to investigations. Right. And I, I'm with Ken on uh, the whole concept that um, some of the most interesting investigative work comes out of uh, reporters who have beats uh, who are extremely knowledgeable about their industries or their areas of coverage and come across something and realize it needs a deeper investigation. I'm of the school of thought that every reporter should have investigative reporting skills because we're all in the business of trying to break down brick wall to get information out to the public that people want to withhold. So, um, you know, card-carrying investigative journalists, I respect them. Um, they do good work, but um, sometimes they also do very predictable work. Um, they look around for a subject that has already been thoroughly reported, and uh, they um, put a big effort into it, and it becomes a big project with multi-parts. Uh, and at the end of the day, they haven't really told the public anything that wasn't already previously reported in many cases, I think. The date's August 28, 2009. A man named Mark Saylor is driving on the freeway near his home in San Diego, California. Mark is an Air Force veteran and a California Highway Patrol officer, but he's off duty today, driving his 13-year-old daughter Mahala to her soccer game with his wife Cleophie and his brother-in-law Chris in the car. The car is a Lexus sedan, an ES350. What happens next is this 911 phone call. 911 emergency, what are you reporting? I'm, I'm sorry, your cell phone's cutting out. We're going north 125. Mm-hmm. And our accelerator's stuck. I'm sorry? Our accelerator's stuck. We're on 125 and we're Okay, northbound 125, where are you passing? We are passing, uh, where are we passing? We're going 120, Mission Gorge. We're in, we're in trouble. We can't, well, there's no brakes. Okay. In freeway half mile. Okay, and you don't have the ability to, like, turn the vehicle off or anything? We're approaching the intersection. We're approaching the intersection. Okay. We're approaching the intersection. Hold on. Ralph will have to correct me if I remember this wrong. Um, but as I recall it, the, the awful thing that happened in San Diego um, was sort of the 2010 equivalent, 2009 equivalent of viral, viral news. People that that the uh, the terrible 9-11 call and the, and the helicopter video and all that of this um, was was spreading around. But at the time, no one was pinning it on Toyota. Um, in fact, my recollection, Ralph, is that we were called into um, the then managing editor's office to sit down and talk about what it was and whether it might have been suicide by automobile. Um, and we had a we had a meeting to try to understand what that meant and whether this was some kind of a you know a suicide attempt and whether indeed there was sort of a plague of suicide by auto going around. I think that's right. I think you know I've been. I've been interested in, I was interested at that time about suicide by auto. And this certainly had some elements of it. Um, the fact that he took his family didn't fit in with the scenario. That was a little troubling. Typically, 
you know, um, suicidal people don't do that. Um, the call to the 911 that recorded the last moments of, of the, of the horrific drive was not consistent with it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we decided to look further into it because it was such a stunning, stunning accident and so, so tragic. And you know, I think what, as we started digging into it, we started, I can't remember exactly at what point, but we realized that there were enormous numbers of sudden unintended acceleration incidents that were being reported to the federal government on Toyotas. And I think that tipped us right there that this was probably not uh, suicide and there was no evidence and we had no indication that the law enforcement agencies down there were investigating this as a suicide. Right. As I recall, we, we, the, we discovered that on the uh, website of NHTSA or, or the National Highway uh, uh, Transit Safety Administration, um, there was these searchable lists of complaints um, by you could you could drill down by um, automaker, by model, and by model year, and look at complaints. And so, starting with the, the exact model of Lexus that this guy was driving, which later we later learned was a loaner from the dealership. Um, we just started looking at complaints and it was, it's a cumbersome system, but you have to, you have to sort of click through multiple screens every single time. It takes slow to load and all that. But what we ultimately found, and we also, at least I, I can't speak for Ralph, but I had very little technical wizardry to find, uh, sort of, um, data programmer ways to simplify the process. So I had to do it all by hand. But, um, what we started to find was, as Ralph said, tons and tons of complaints about this model and then the same model from different years. And then we started looking at other Toyota models and just an extraordinary number of complaints about cars running away from people, sometimes causing accidents, sometimes not, but people being terrified about it running away from them. And these were all complaints voluntarily submitted by people who were driving these cars. And when we looked at other automakers, we saw maybe a handful, but nothing close to this volume on any other car we could find. So that would have been probably by that or maybe in early September, two thousand nine when we started noticing that trend by september uh early september we had identified 2600 reports of sudden unintended acceleration in toyotas which just swamped over any other automaker or model correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is that the explanation that was in vogue was floor mat entrapment that a lot of people were saying so what would happen is the brake would get stuck on the floor mat, especially if there were user error. But you guys dug further and found that it wasn't just the floor mats. It was uh, something called drive-by wires. So tell me about how you got there. What made you think it might not just be floor mats, it might be something further? One thing important to note is that there was a recall in September. I don't remember the exact date, but there was a recall in September. And I remember there was a different recall by a different automaker. And Ralph will perhaps refresh my memory, but it was it. I had to write both those stories as daily news stories, the recalls. And I remember the Toyota one was the, was the one we thought was less important. It was sort of, we buried that inside the business section and the other recall was, was sort of front page of the business section news. Um, And the Toyota recall was just sort of this like innocuous looking notice that they were recalling a bunch of floor mats and a bunch of cars. And they didn't really, they didn't, as I recall, make much connection, if any at all, to that leading to sudden acceleration or anything like that. They just said, oh, we're, we're recalling a bunch of floor mats because they might not like 
correctly sit down or stay in their place and re replace them. And I remember Ralph and I being like, whoa, that's really weird. Yeah, I think uh, every car is um, floor mats. So why was it that Toyota disproportionately had floor mats and trapping their pedal? And we went through a lot of, um, you know, and enterprise effort to try to understand this ourselves because there were no answers. Uh, the experts really did, couldn't answer that question. We were out measuring floor clearances on pedals and Toyotas and that sort of thing. And later we learned that this wasn't an entirely new issue, that Toyota had previously made recalls um, for uh, floor mat uh, and sudden acceleration issues. Um, and yeah, we found out that the spike, one of the things, crucial points, and I think in our reporting was the determination that the sudden acceleration reports really began to spike in the very model year when Toyota adopted a drive-by wire system, which for the first time disconnected the pedal's mechanical cable linkage to the um, engine and instead used a sensor on the gasoline pedal to transmit the position of the pedal to a computer on the engine, which would interpret that as uh, the driver's intent to increase power. And uh, it was a very complicated uh, system to begin with. And, and like I said, it spiked in the very first year and that just gave us an indication that there was something more than um, this has just happened to be uh, a fluke that their floor mats were entrapping pedals and nobody else's were. Another thing about it was the credibility issue and this, this conflict between wanting to, to really come clean on this and also wanting to save money came up because those recalls were really, they weren't, they weren't exactly like we're going to replace the whole pedal assembly. They were asking the dealers to make these sort of very, in my opinion, janky modifications on the pedals to make them not stick, right? They were, I don't remember exactly, but they were sort of like shaving down a portion of the pedal or something like that. He's right. They were like cutting the pedal with some saw or something. It was very, it was very like, we are going to do this as cheaply as possible. And what I read in their recalls was like Toyota at a corporate level saying, we don't believe any of this. We're just doing this for optics. So Ralph and Ken were getting closer to the truth by the day, showing more of how Toyota had cut corners with its drive-by-wire system and publishing article after article. I was curious to know how Toyota responded. I think Toyota sort of really felt like they they wanted to prove us wrong and they wanted to show us we were wrong. And I remember uh, one one point getting a personal note in the mail, handwritten from a uh, from a high-up Toyota executive trying to make fun of us. Um, so it became personal for them. Toyota's initial response to our initial two or three story was to push back very hard and say, well, you are raising the potential of other problems here. And absolutely, we are convinced that this is a floor mat entrapment issue. And um, at one point, they came out to uh, the LA Times uh, to uh, meet with our editors because they were so annoyed at us. And, and they brought out, I don't know, about five or six of their guys came down and said, you know, try to say we were really off base and we must be biased or something. And they brought a, they brought a Toyota and they went, wanted to show us how this uh, floor mat could entrap the pedal. So we went out to the parking garage 
and they put in a second um, floor mat on top of the uh, a second rubber floor mat on top of the cloth floor floor mat to show us what was going wrong. And they kept trying and trying and trying. They couldn't entrap the pedal. It was actually a pretty embarrassing moment for them. And that meeting Ralph mentioned was unbelievable because, as Ralph said, they they marched into the newsroom and demanded a meeting with the top editors and sat there in all their suits and sort of berated all of us for being unfair to them. And then had this dog and pony show in the garage. They'd showed up with a, like a fleet of three or four of the identical brand new, identical model Lexuses that, that we were writing about. And then these guys in, in their fancy suits, right? They were, this guy was in a suit, I remember. And he's down on the ground trying to shove the mat under the pedal. And he's grunting and sweating and he can't do it. And he pulls, I remember at one point he pulled the mat out of the back seat, the, the, the rear passenger mat, and put that on top of the other mat, which was on top of the third mat in the driver's side, and was rolling it up and twisting it in funny positions and just could not make it stick. And it was like, it was the biggest, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, failure in front of an audience since the, since the, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit moment. It was really bad. <laughs> oh, man. Did did your editors talk to you? Did you ever face other backlash? Did you ever feel pressure to drop the story in any other way? I think we felt very fairly alone in the topic throughout the fall of twenty two thousand nine. Um, uh, ABC News did some coverage, but um, but we really felt alone, which is why Toyota called that meeting with us uh, in the in the newsroom because they were um, they they felt that we were no one was. With us, we were the only person attacking them. It was unfair, et cetera, as was their argument. And I think there were moments where Ralph and I felt alone, but also we felt really confident in our reporting and all, and wanted to do more. And we had an editor who was really behind us and um, had a very big appetite for these stories. So as many as we could produce, he wanted to put in the paper. And we were pumping out stories until the last day of the of the year as fast as we could. Um, I think there was a little bit of a break in it after the end of the year, maybe just catching our breath, et cetera. And then... Um, this day happened, this, this sort of wild, unprecedented before or after day in the history of auto sales in the U.S., which is um, NHTSA called for an immediate halt to all sales of Toyota vehicles in the country, period. They shut down every dealership in the country and said, no one, they cannot sell a single car. Um, it's never happened before, never happened since. It was wild. And as soon as that happened, then, then we had lots of company on the coverage. And then there was reporters from every outlet covering this topic. Um, I remember being very grumpy uh, because the New York Times had a front page story on the topic that was sort of um, uh, extremely similar, I would say, to a story, several stories we had done um, down to the same uh, lead, as we call it, the beginning of the story. And, and mo most of the facts seemed cribbed, perhaps, from our coverage. But at that point, everyone was all over it. My recollection is that the Detroit papers did a lot of coverage since they're auto industry focused. Um, and the Wall Street Journal was pretty ferociously covering it as well. There's kind of two feelings there that are at, at odds, it seems like. One, um, there, it'd be nice to have other people covering this, right? So that we don't feel so alone and we don't feel like we're, you know, the crazy people who are seeing or who are just hallucinating something. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, there's the, you know, well, if we're the only ones working on this and we're the ones who break the story, then, um, then we're the ones who found it, right? And and uh, we kind of get the shine. So, uh, so do you kind of feel both at the same time, one more than the other? Absolutely, Winston. That was a great observation. You don't, you really don't want to be alone for a long, long time on a story that everybody's ignoring. 
because um, it tends to send a signal that other people aren't accepting the validity of of the story. Uh, but the flip side is, you know, you don't want to you don't want the competition to take over the story either. Um, we, we weren't in any real fear of that happening um, because by February and March, we were so entrenched in the story. We had inside sources at Toyota that were leaking us documents. And we had um, a lot of national experts who really respected what we had done and they were uh, willingly talking with us. And we had a number of attorneys who were leading the class action suits and and the wrongful death suits uh, that were doing their own discovery and, and um, giving it to us, uh, um, which in some cases had some good facts in, behind it. So, but yeah, you don't want either one. I think at some points there were editors who were wondering why we're still on this. Um, it seemed like the big news had landed. There were, there were, you know, lawsuits at that point. There were even a settlement or two. There were congressional hearings. We, our, our coverage triggered, uh, as I recall, three or four congressional hearings. So that was quite significant. People were saying, well, why are you still doing this? We were doing it because we didn't feel like we had drilled down to the, uh, to the bottom yet. And I think nobody took us off the story. Ultimately, we felt we did. Don't I, I don't know how Ken feels, but I think we got to the bottom of it. Let's talk about sourcing this story then. Um, how did you how did you go about that? Like, it sounds like there were, there was at least, you know, one whistleblower, you got your hands on an internal document, uh, something that was presented uh, inside the company that that pretty clearly showed that the, the company tried to save hundreds of millions of dollars um, by persuading federal regulators to, to limit safety recalls. Um, so, so that document and um, other internal sources, how did you get your hands on, on those, those folks? So the first four major investigative stories really didn't, weren't aided that much by internal sources. We were doing a lot of, really pick and shovel work. We established our own database of um, sudden acceleration events based, you know, downloading NHTSA's own data. And I think when you do that, you you appeal to uh, people inside who are have their own moral concerns about what's going on inside a corporation. And that draws them out of the woodwork um, more than trying to make cold calls. That just doesn't work. I mean, you can do that a thousand times and you'll be lucky to get one person to talk to you. Um, I, I reminded of something on a different topic uh, that I remember hearing a speech by Laura Poitras, who is the um, one of the people who got uh, the, the Snowden leaks happen. And Snowden went to her and um uh, she no none of these people had ever heard of Snowden, but he went to her because she had a body of work that had to do with um, carefully shepherding classified information and being careful about protecting sources. And she'd already sort of publicly proven her bona fides on being the kind of person you could trust to 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 share that information with. So her work allowed the person to come to her rather than her you know her chasing this person down. That's just. Ralph and I have both been down that road, and that is a frustrating road to so to try to find um, uh, people within the company who want to share. Because if you think about it, think about jobs you've had. Um, speaking both to you, Winston, and to whoever's listening to this podcast, think about a job you've had. If someone random person called you and said, 
spill the beans about all the dirt of the place you work at, there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that, even if you were mad at your company, right? I mean, you still got a you still got bills to pay. You still want your company to exist so you can not you know you can eat every every night, and so it's a pretty high barrier to to people just deciding to to, to produce the dirt on their company. And on top of that, you might work at a bad company, but the odds that you particularly have the actual smoking gun are low as well. Um, people, reporters don't really want to hear over his rumors that bad stuff is happening with no documents or no proof. So it's hard to find that that needle in the haystack. And as Ralph says, proving to that actual person who actually has that, that you exist, is, is a more effective method, I think. Next, we talked about the fallout from the LA Times stories. The work Ralph and Ken did had some immediate impacts. Now, back then, I was a senior in high school, so I vaguely remember hearing about the crashes, headlines, and recalls. And to be honest, I think I was spending most of my time just trying to get into college. So I definitely didn't know that it was a group of 12 people out in Oklahoma that I should have really been paying attention to. Vindication is not the word I would choose, but there there were moments where we felt that, that events were outside of journalism held up our reporting. And significantly, there was now hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits filed against Toyota from people that had been put together in what's called an MDL, a multi-district litigation, um, which is the way that they handle what's called mass torts, which are lawsuits that are many, many plaintiffs claiming personal injury um, from defective products, among other things, or, de- or defective services. And um, it's, it's similar to, but not the same as a class action. Um, and they hold, they, they arrange these bellwether cases where individual cases are tried out. And that was going to be the process. Toyota thought it was going to find vindication there. But instead, what it found was that a jury um, in Oklahoma, I believe, um, ruled for the plaintiff and against Toyota. And that was massive because Oklahoma is, is in the world of of, uh, of plaintiff law, is known as a uh, as a uh, non plaintiff friendly state, a state where companies do really well and um, corporations, uh, excuse me, plaintiffs do poorly. It's a very conservative state. It's what we think of as a very red state. Um, and here was a jury in a state like that finding unanimously that that uh, something was wrong with the um, with the software. And it wasn't about floor mats and it wasn't about sticky pedals. It was a software problem, which Toyota had never acknowledged. Um, and as soon as that happened, everything changed. Toyota just started settling the cases as fast as it could. We couldn't get away from it as fast enough. I did have to ask, though, how much do Ralph and Ken feel like things really changed? Uh, it's an important thing because one of the things you have to, we learned, I did, maybe Ralph already knew about it, but I didn't, which is that the auto industry in Japan uh, is covered by the press in a very strange way, or very strange to at least our eyes. Um, uh, it's such an important industry there um, that uh, they have a lot of power over the way they're covered, and they have these press clubs. If you want to write about Toyota and you are a Japanese journalist, you have to join the Toyota Press Club or the Honda Press Club. Um, you, they literally won't talk to you; they won't take your calls unless you're a member of the press club. Um, and Maybe the closest analogy would be the way that sports is covered in this country. If you if you write too many negative things about the Dodgers and, and you're the Dodgers reporter, then the Dodgers will stop <laughs> taking your calls. Well, with Toyota, they had this press club and the members were expected not to ask hard questions of Toyota. Um, otherwise, they would get kicked out of the press club. And so 
Toyota, which is controlled entirely by Japan and is not interested really in the input from people in other parts of the world, um, is covered at home where it matters by a press club that refuses to ask hard questions. Toyota came out of both of these things really as the Teflon automaker. Nothing really stuck with them in the marketplace. I don't think they, they paid a high price in terms of federal fines and penalties and lawsuit agreements. But I don't think the buying public really held this against them. There was one funny side note for us, though. I remember that I believe during the financial crisis, Toyota had dropped the LA Times as an advertiser, and we weren't. There was there was no more national ads from Toyota in LA Times because they were cutting back, um, and auto sales were so anemic. I mean, they'd gone from 16 million SAR, which is the measurement of uh, uh, it's a seasonally adjusted annual rate of auto sales, so 16 million prior to the collapse to like 10 or 11 million, which was a massive hit to the industry and they were cutting back on advertising. Um, but because of the sudden acceleration crisis, Toyota started taking out full page ads in the LA Times again to uh, to ensure that people would buy their cars. Now I want to be clear about that, that Ralph and I had no hand whatsoever in that those conversations or anything. It was independent of us and we didn't, we have no, we, no communication with that side, but it wasn't sort of an amusing side, side thing we observed while doing the reporting. There's a lot of talk about distrust of the media, media bias right now, obviously. Uh, and some folks, when they look at investigative journalists, it's typically in the realm of politics, but they'll be like, you're making too big of a deal of fill in the blank, right? Hillary Clinton's private email server or Russian involvement in the election, voter fraud, whatever it is, or you're not making a big enough deal, right? You have folks on both sides. So how would you respond to, to people who, who have this feeling that investigative journalism is, is really about driving an agenda and you kind of pick and choose what to investigate? I mean, I, you have to pick and choose what to investigate because you can't investigate everything, right? Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I think I don't. I don't subscribe to the idea that journalists can be truly, truly neutral arbiters of everything, and that, that their own biases don't exist. Um, but I also um, do believe that investigate that people who do this kind of work tend to be committed to um, good stories and um, tend to believe that if they can dig up dirt on. Donald Trump, they can also dig up dirt on, on Joe Biden, that uh, uh, dirt is dirt. And that's what we're, we're in the dirt excavation business. And, and we like it all. So uh, if, if you want to give me a good story on someone I voted for, I'll do it. If you want to do give a good story on someone I didn't vote for, I'll do that too. It's the, for, for, for the, for me, the thrill is finding the dirt and it doesn't matter what it's attached to. And, you know, some of that maybe comes from also just being a bit um, of just being a, a, a hidebound skeptic and believing that there's sort of that human nature is, has some pretty big flaws and bad things happen um, regardless of political slant. Um, I, I, I really, I'm not perfect, but I really believe that I, that I am not inserting my bias into my stories. And, you know, we may be, uh, Ben and I may be a little bit old school on that, but um, I didn't get into journalism to promote my own beliefs. I got into it because I love the craft. Um, I love meeting people and talking with people. Uh, I like writing, um, all those things. Um, there may be a shift going on. I think there is a shift going on in journalism uh, that um, probably prompts some of the skepticism that uh, is agenda-driven. Um, 
certainly wasn't for us uh, on Toyota or anything else I've ever investigated. Um, it's uh, just been trying to ferret out uh, the gross mistakes that institutions and people in the institutions make and, and to the detriment of the public. All right. Thank you guys so much. Uh, both of you, Ken, Ralph, really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, uh, thanks very much. Those were good questions. Nice interview. Yeah, it was lovely. It was great to hear that. It's it really, I, I, it's actually more fun than I thought it would be to just walk down memory lane and remember those stories. And as we were talking, I just thought of a ton of different experiences we had doing it and what, uh, in some ways, it was some of the funnest coverage I've ever done. I, I just had a great time doing it. Yeah, loved hearing about it. Thank you, guys. That was Ralph Vardabadian and Ken Bensinger. Ralph is still with the LA Times, now as a special contributor instead of a national correspondent, so you can read his work there. And Ken has moved on to BuzzFeed, which I know sounds kind of weird, right? Like, do you really need an investigative reporter to come up with a piece about 10 signs your cat is a wizard? That's a real article, by the way, I looked it up. But in case you didn't know, they're actually doing some serious reporting over there, so check out Ken's work too. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Heard About. Next, we're going to turn our attention to the day that many, many of you have been longing for, the start of the baseball season. And to commemorate opening day on April 1st, we'll be releasing some interviews with a couple people from in and around the league. Because you might not realize it, but there's a lot of mass communication that happens in the world of baseball. (laughs) And you thought home runs were the most exciting part. Well... We'll see you then. This has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.